emotionally healthy spirituality. As I mentioned, the, today is the launch of an eight-week series uh, that will go hand-in-hand hand with the EHS course on Thursday nights. Um, and you're going to hear a lot about this. And I, I honestly believe, uh, because I know it to be true in my heart, that you won't get sick of hearing about this. In fact, I believe that God is going to ignite a fire in the, in the, and a passion in the heart and the soul of this church um, that will spread from this place throughout our community, that will touch Glendora, that will touch the St. Gabriel Valley, that will touch the ends of the earth as God does something amazing in our lives. You ever notice that something, sometimes something looks great on the surface, but it's a disaster underneath? You ever, you ever had that experience? Okay, just wave your arms. Everyone just kind of wave your arms. All right, good. All right. Sometimes we see things and go, wow, that looks good. And then after a little bit more inspection, we realize that's not good at all. For instance, this statement, don't worry about it, it's nothing. Those were the words that were uttered by U.S. Navy uh, Seaman Kermit Tyler on December 7, 1941, as radar had just picked up a large formation of planes heading for Hawaii. Of course, this was the wave, first wave of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. Don't worry about it. It's nothing. How about this one? I have no enemies. Why should I fear? That was President William McKinley on August, in August 1901, just a few days before his assassination. How about another one? There's no reason for any individual to have a computer in their home. Stated by Digital Equipment Chairperson Ken Olson in 1977. Have you ever heard of Digital Equipment? Exactly, uh, which I think is kind of ironic because I am preaching from my notes, which are on an iPad. And so there is no reason for anyone to have a personal computer in their home, right? It sounded like a sound or sound wisdom, but it wasn't. And, and for that company, ultimately spelled disaster because they didn't keep up with the technologies. On the flip side, sometimes things don't look good on the surface, but they really are good. This statement, you ain't going nowhere, son. You ought to go back to driving truck. Do you know who that was said about? Anyone in the house know? That was a statement it said at the Grand Old Opry manager, by the Grand Old Opry manager in 1954 before firing Elvis Presley after one performance. Right? Big mistake. This statement, you won't amount to much. A Munich teacher told Albert Einstein at age 10, age 10 years old in, nine, in, in uh, 1889, you, ain't, you won't amount to much. Albert Einstein, probably one of the most recognizable names around the world. How about this one? With your voice, no one is going to let you broadcast. CBS producer saying that to Barbara Walters in 1958. Things aren't always what they appear. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to talk about emotionally healthy spirituality. Emotional health and contemplative spirituality, when interwoven together, offer nothing short of a spiritual revolution, transforming the hidden places deep beneath the surface of our lives. See, the thing is, we see just a part. You, you show only a part of who you are. 
On any given Sunday, you come to church and you let people see the part of you that you want them to see. The reality is there's so much more below the surface. And not only that, there are parts of us that we personally ignore. There's parts of me that I just don't want to look at. And, and then even further than that, there's parts of me that I'm not even aware of. This morning, I want to talk about the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. Now, you might be thinking, I'm, I'm not an emotional person. I'm good. I'm good. My, my daughter's chuckling because I am totally an emotional person, right? Yeah, we sat at dinner last night for Gavin's birthday, and I was looking across the table at my four kids sitting next to each other, and I just started crying for no reason other than they were sitting there, and I was just so blessed. So, so I'm an emotional person. You might not might be like me. You might not cry at all. And you might think, well, I'm, I'm good. I'll just check out for the next few weeks. Can I invite you to, to not? Because every one of us has emotion uh, built into us by God. We serve an emotional God. Now, he's not emotionally unstable, but he has emotion. God feels. And as such, we feel. And the reality is, is if we are emotionally unhealthy, we're missing out. So this morning, we're going to talk about knowing yourself that you may know God. And I'm going to run through this list. We have a list up here on the screen of the next eight weeks. The problem of unhealthy spirituality this week. Know yourself that you may know God will be next week. Going back in order to go forward on week three. Journey through the wall. And these all, all of these statements will come into focus as we move through. Enlarging your soul through grief and loss. Doesn't that just sound like a fun one? Uh, this, this is one of the most impactful ones for me because, because we tend to avoid grief and loss, and yet it's in the midst of grief and loss that God does deep works in us. Discovering the rhythms of the daily office and Sabbath and grow, growing into an emotionally mature adult and then finally go to the next step to develop a rule of life. So that's a quick snapshot of the next eight weeks. So we need to look below the surface, kind of like an iceberg. I'm going to put a picture of an iceberg up here. You'll see that in an iceberg, only part of it is visible from the surface. 10% generally is what they say is visible when you see an iceberg. So if you go on an Alaska cruise and, and you're seeing the ice floating through, through the water, you know that there's 90% of that iceberg and its mass is below the surface. Of the 10% we see is really where we, we change behavior. We modify our behavior to make sure that things look good. To try and appear that we have it together. And I won't ask for a show of hands because I know every one of us does it. In fact, we're shaped and molded and, and trained to do this from when we're little. It's the reason why when we ask people, hey, how are you doing today? And we go, Fine. I'm modifying my behavior to communicate that everything's okay when in reality, I'm hurting, my life is falling apart, I'm sick, relationships are broken, whatever the case may be. The 90% underneath 
the surface, what we don't see, is where Jesus wants to transform us. This is his goal when he says in Romans chapter 8, God says to us that his goal is to conform us into the image of his son Jesus, to transform us, as Romans 12 says. It's the the 90% below the surface that he wants to minister to, not so that we just walk out some behavioral change in the 10%. See, my desire for you as a people, as as children of the Lord, of the Most High, as sons and daughters of the King, as priests and prophets, is that not that you would behave better. My desire is that your hearts would be transformed and that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus. Amen? But that's not an easy thing to do. Because we default to behavior modification so easily. The author of this book and and the gentleman who really developed this course is a pastor of a church in New York. His name is Peter Scazzaro. I've read this book. My wife has read this book. and, And I can honestly say it has greatly affected our lives, our marriage, our walk with the Lord, and our ministry In in regards to emotionally unhealthy spirituality, Pete says this, I I lived it full force for the first 19 years of my life. He lived unhealthy spirituality full force. Destructive effects for the next 17 years as a Christian, and it was a slow process for me to come out of that and into health, and I am still working on it. The reality is that this journey is never done. This process is never done. See, because the deeper we press into emotional health and into emotional spirituality, healthy emotional spirituality, the more we uncover and the deeper we can go and the more we can press in. And I don't mean that to be discouraging. It's actually exciting because the more you press in and the more you uncover, the more you want to. The more you want to see God move, the more you want to see God do amazing things. And so I want to walk this journey with you. Megan and I want to walk this journey with you. Please hear my heart in this. And and, and this is why I've even felt led and made the decision to do this course. Because as you can probably tell, I enjoy preaching. I enjoy hearing from the Lord. And so to, to take someone else's material and try and work through it and, and own it myself is, is actually harder than writing my own sermons. But I believe so much in the power of this to transform lives that I want to go through this with you. And this is not coming from me in a place where I'm like, hey, I figured this out and you can be like me, Right? You can also read my book, Humility, and How I Attained It. This is, not, this is not me going, I figured this out. This is a pastor standing before you going, I'm in a process of figuring some things out, and I'd love for you to join me. And so as I even teach this class on Thursday nights, I'm not teaching it from an authoritative standpoint. I'm teaching it from a place of, hey, this is what I'm going through. Join me in my pain and my healing. Amen? So this morning, I want us to take a look at the life of Saul. And in the life of Saul in the Old Testament, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. We see in him an example of three indicators of 
emotional unhealthiness. Three indicators that we're going to look at in the life of Saul, and then we'll draw some parallels for our own lives. See, Saul was anointed king by God. He was the first king of Israel. He was the first one who stepped into that leadership role. Before that, uh, they had priests who functioned in that place. And there were the prophets, Samuel the prophet. In fact, when Israel comes to Samuel and says, we want a king so we can be like the other nations. And Samuel's like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And he goes to the Lord and God says to Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me. They're rejecting me as their king. But God gives them what they want. And so God anoints Saul to be king over Israel. He's one of the greatest examples in all of scripture of someone who lacks emotional health and a contemplative life. He came from humble beginnings. In fact, if you remember the story, after he gets anointed, Samuel goes back to get him. And you remember what was happening? He was hiding in the luggage. Now, he was a big guy. Samuel, I mean, Saul was a big guy. He's the guy that would have been the captain of the football team. He was good looking. He was strong. He had a presence about him. And yet when he's anointed to be king of Israel, he's hiding in the luggage, not off to a great start. There's a particular story here in uh, 1 Samuel 15 that really highlights Saul's struggle. In chapter 3, I mean, verse 3 of chapter 15, we see this. God gives clear instructions to Saul regarding a battle that he engages with, with the Amalekites. And Samuel had come, the prophet had come to Saul and said, hey, here's what God wants you to do. And, and as we'll read here in just a second, he doesn't, he doesn't mince words. He doesn't, it's no vagueness here. It's very clear. In fact, in verse 3, it says this, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Pretty clear, right? Wipe them out. Wipe them out because these people down the road will have detrimental effect on the nation of Israel if you don't. Clear instructions. In verse 9, we see the partial obedience of Saul. And he feels, by the way, no guilt. Or remorse. There's no healthy guilt in his life, as we read in verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So Saul made this decision in the heat of battle. Listen, we're going to save the best. Because I'm sure God will be happy with the good stuff. And we'll just destroy the things that are lacking, the things that aren't as good. Verse 13, when he sees Samuel, his next encounter with Samuel, he actually blesses Samuel. He says this, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. No, you didn't. Yet, yet he stands before Samuel with the audacity to say, I did everything that God commanded, and I bless you 
which for, for us, we don't really understand the gravity of that statement, right? Someone sneezes, we say, bless you. That's about the most we use that. But we don't go around and say, I bless you. When he blesses Samuel, there is weightiness to that statement. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed all the commandments of the Lord. See, Saul's life is out of order underneath the surface where we can't see it. In fact, Saul is an absolute mess. Outside, he looks good, but he is absolutely and completely emotionally unhealthy. Both his emotional and spiritual life are out of order. Can I just tell you right now, your emotions and your spiritual life are inseparable. They have incredible effect. In fact, Pete Scazzaro says this, that we are made of five parts. There's five, we're five component beings that we are spiritual, that we are emotional, we are intellectual, we are relational, and we are physical. And that all five of those things need to be healthy in our lives in order for us to thrive. And if one of those areas is out of whack, it will affect the other places. By out of whack, I mean unhealthy. But these two especially, the emotions and the spirit, are so closely tied together, they are inseparable. See, Saul never gets below the surface. He never gets beneath the iceberg. I want us to read this verse together. We'll have this one up on the screen. 1 Samuel 15, 20 through 24. We're going to read this aloud together. If you can, if you can read it, go back one. On the count of three, if you can read it, go ahead and read it out loud. One, two, three. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. I was afraid of the people, and I gave in to them. So here's the first point. The first thing that we can draw from Samuel's life, the first indicator, an emotionally unhealthy person says no to reflection and self-awareness. Someone who is unhealthy emotionally says no to reflection and self-awareness. On the surface, Saul looks like he's serving God. He's going through the motions. He's praying He's listening to prophetic words. He's going to church and he's doing some of God's will. Some of God's will. And he's receptive every time Samuel shows up. He goes, Samuel, it is great to see you. What's the word for today? What's God saying? He's ready to receive that prophetic word. But underneath, Saul wants and needs approval so deep even in repenting 
verse 30, we see this. He says, then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now. This is Saul, this is Saul saying to Samuel, I have sinned. I messed up. I made a mistake-ish. Right? Yet, Samuel, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. You see how out of order? I have sinned, but make sure that the people don't know. Make sure that no one sees this, Samuel. And the words of Samuel to, to Saul were pretty clear. God is now against you. He's withdrawn because of your sin, he's rejected you as king. It's like Saul didn't even hear the words. Hey, Samuel, okay, I, I messed up. But hey, can you go back with me to just make sure that I, I say face? Just would you make sure to honor me? And I'm sure Samuel's just going, what are you talking about? God just rejected you as king and you're worried about being honored in front of the people? Completely out of whack. See, he wants and needs approval, not of God, but of man. He's unaware of his own fears. In verse 24, he says, I was afraid of the people. And he doesn't even realize what he's saying. I did this thing not because I'm a strong leader and I made a decision. I did it because I was afraid of the people. He's unaware of his own fears. He's jealous. He's absolutely jealous. He doesn't want others to be more popular than him. In fact, in the next verse, next chapters, chapter 18 through 20, is filled with the details of Saul's six attempts to murder David. Three times with a javelin. Twice he lured him to almost certain death uh, versus the Philistines. He puts him in charge of the military uh, to get killed, to put him out front saying, hey, if we put him in a place of danger, he'll die. Then he sets him up to be married to one of his daughters in order to try and get closer to him so he can kill him. And by chapter 19, he sends soldiers to David's very house to kill him, to find him, and to take his life. You see him in the next few chapters, Saul starts spiraling downward out of control. By the end of the, the, these next few chapters, he is in a full-out manhunt. He commits the full resources of the Israeli army to find one man that he hates, is not an enemy of Israel, is the, the one who's been anointed to be the next king. And Saul, because he is not going to be as popular and as liked as David, goes after him. See, Saul has both repressed anger and explosive anger. And can I tell you this morning, both are dangerous. Both are extremely dangerous. See, envy, envy destroys your ability to think straight. Not one of us makes good decisions when we're feeling envious, when we're coveting when we're feeling like we're being excluded and we're not in the, in the limelight. Not one of us makes good decisions. See, Saul truly believes he's obeying God by doing most of God's will. He's convinced himself that he is really serving God by doing almost everything that God said to do. 
and he deceives himself. See, the reality is he's shallow. He's shallow. He's not really paying attention to God. See, he goes to church, but he wants the approval of people. And he makes his decisions out of a place of fear and jealousy. Can I ask you this morning, have you ever seen this kind of behavior? Showing up, I'm here, but I'm so resentful. And you should be happy I'm here, but below the surface, I really don't like you. And I don't like what you stand for. And I don't like that person, and I don't, I don't like that person. Can I tell you, this is one of the places where the enemy comes against the church. I'll serve. I'll serve. But I'm not going to do it with a joyful heart, because that person said that thing to me that one time. And there's this resentment under the surface that just eats away. And when we're in that place, we are not hearing from God. We're, we're just doing our own thing. I'll make it personal. I, I've battled this for most of my life. Uh, Megan can attest to the fact that when we first started dating, um, jealousy was a huge problem. In fact, we broke up for uh, a period of time because I was messed up. I, was, I, was, I really struggled with attention and getting attention and, and doing all the kind of things and do, you know, just being weirdo, just being absolutely a weirdo to get more attention, which never communicated care for her. It was all about me, and it even goes back to when I was a kid. And the most recent place, in a place where I've really felt breakthrough in this, when we were serving at our last church, before we came on paid staff, uh, our family was living in a travel trailer. As some of you have heard, we spent a year and a half by choice uh, living in a trailer. It was an amazing time for our family. But we got to a place where we needed to settle down. Kids were going into high school. And so we're serving at this church, and, and um, it was about October, November. Um, we had made a commitment to, to serve at this church, and the pastor had said to me, that's great. We have no money to pay you. Um, but if you want to serve, you're welcome to. In fact, that's when I became a missions pastor. He put me in charge of missions, and it was great. Um, and there were two, two people on full-time staff. The pastor and the worship pastor uh, were the full, two full-time staff. One of the, the uh, volunteer pastors at the church who served his guts out is a guy named by the name of Justin. Justin's been a good friend uh, for many, many years, and his family have been good friends, and he was a part of the church plant uh, 10 years before that. He has been Pastor Ryan's right-hand guy and uh, had, was recently you know, married and a uh, young couple, and um, Ryan pulled me into his office. It was late November, and he says, hey, I just need you to know that at the end of the year, we're bringing Justin on full-time paid salary, and here's what my heart wanted to do. He has, he's young, young and married, and I'm not even sure if he had a kid at that point or they had a little baby. I was like, I have, my heart's saying this to, to my mind, well, you have four children. You have more responsibility. You know, you should, you should really get that job before him. And you've, you're older, and you have a lot more experience, and you have a lot more to offer. Like in a split second, these are the things that I'm hearing bubbling up from my heart into my mind. 
and I start getting frustrated. And immediately the Holy Spirit just goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? You should be celebrating for Justin because you knew him when he was a junior higher and he received a call to full-time ministry and you've watched him grow up and go to, go to college and see the man that I've grown him to be and you should be celebrating for him, not despising him. And I had to make a choice in that office and, and literally I can take you to the spot. I had to choose and, and just under my breath so that Ryan didn't hear it, I had to say, I choose to, to celebrate. Justin's promotion. I choose to celebrate that this young man is walking into the fullness of what God has for him. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, but it was right. That was November. At the end of that year, someone in the church sold a business and tithed on the income, and it was a large sum of money. January, it was about January 12th or so, Ryan calls Megan and I and says, hey, I want to have lunch with you. And, and, and if you've ever met Pastor Ryan down the bridge, he's, he's a gift giver. And when he wants to give you something, he's like giddy. And he's like, <laughs> he's not a silly guy, but he gets silly. And we're like, what is up with you, man? And so we went out to lunch with Justin and Ryan and Megan and myself. And he says, listen, we got this money that came in. And I want to let you know the very first thing that the church council said was, We've got to bring Barry and Megan on full time. And we got everything and more. Everything and more. They brought us on full time, paid for our health insurance, and paid off all of our credit card debt. In one day, can I just tell you, if I had chosen on that day in November to say, you know what, it should be me, not him. The date in January would not have happened because God couldn't trust me with that if my heart wasn't in the right place. How do you respond when people are promoted ahead of you? Do you celebrate them or do you despise them? If you despise, if you're jealous, God can't work with your heart because there's hardness there. And we have to allow God to make our hearts malleable, which means we have to take a look at our own hearts and say, God, are there issues in my heart? Are there issues below the surface? There are places where I act out. See, rather than get along with God and let him deal with stuff, Lord, I saying things like, Lord, I bring you this jealousy and this hatred. Help me to rejoice when others do well. Instead of doing that, we push it away. You act sweet and nice. How are you? Great to see you. Or you just avoid people because you're like, I don't want to be happy for you, so it's just rather not see your face. Right? That's ugly. And it's rampant in the body of Christ. You come to church. I'm here for worship, but I'm mad on the inside. Rather than actually in the midst of worship saying, Lord, here is my stuff. Can you please help me? We sing of the love of God and of his power, but we make decisions based on fear. Parenting our children, pushing them, driving them, it's fear-driven. Our finances, decisions about work, decisions about sexuality, acting out sexually to please someone so they don't reject you. Being in conflict or avoiding conflict because I want people 
to like me. See, sometimes we do hear God, but it's too emotionally painful to change. We live one appearance above the surface, but another whole reality below the surface in our lives. You doing okay? Father, I just ask right now that you would minister healing in this place, that you would make this church an environment of grace and love and peace so that we can grow healthy together. Amen. Are you aware of how you come off to people? The reality is most of us are unaware of what people really think of us because we're unaware of who we are ourselves. What is it like to be with you? Touching all these nerves. What's it like to be with you? I'm difficult. I'm touchy. I'm irritable. I'm ornery. I'm cold. I'm prideful. And I'm not aware of it. Or maybe I am and I don't care. Some of you are. And you don't know it. And I don't throw that out there as a judgment. Or an observation even. But in a room of this size. There's a good chance that we're dealing with some pretty deep stuff. Amen. Amen. Pete Kazira says this. Reflecting was painful. I didn't want to reflect because I felt guilty. And it's easier to avoid guilt than to deal with our pain. See, now here's the key. Now that we've got really depressed, <laughs> there's good news. See, there's a key to unlocking, key to, key to staying in touch with God in yourself, and it's this silence and solitude. And you're going to hear this over and over and over again. A few weeks ago, I preached on Sabbath. This takes Sabbath to the next level. If you're not getting time alone with God, you're not going to be aware of who or what you are. Silence and solitude. It's not just paying attention to what is going on on the outside, but also paying attention to motives, feelings, thoughts, and attitudes on the inside. Why did I say that? Why did I respond like that? Why did I make that decision? What was driving that? We got to sit, or I sat on a panel, an interview panel, in front of 400 high school students, and they wrote down questions the day before. And can I tell you, the questions, if you had to read them, would break your heart. Because our high school students and our junior high students are dealing with things that we can't even imagine one of the questions and one that I got to address was, how do I hear the voice of God? And so we had a conversation about that. But, but here's what I realized. Every other question in regards to pain, sexuality, sin, struggles, hurt, really tied back to, am I hearing the voice of God? Because you can't effectively address all of the areas of your life that are struggling if you're not hearing the voice of God. And so silence and solitude, being in touch with who he is and being in touch with yourself. Again, the title this morning, knowing yourself that you may know God. 
You can't be in touch with God if you're not in touch with yourself. Saul was not in touch with himself. He had learned to deceive himself, and he believed the lie. Listen, he believed the lie he told himself. If that's not messed up, I don't know what is. Yet we do that all the time. You are not in reality if you're not in touch with what is inside of you. See, we think what's real is the stuff that's tangible around. It's what's inside that's real. And we have to get in touch with those things. To know this takes silence and solitude. To gently draw us to the depths and to tame our false self. To tame who we think we are and let the real person emerge. If you contrast the life of Saul and David, we have most of the Psalms because David wrote them sitting under a tree in times of solitude with the Lord. And when you contrast the two lives, David was not perfect, but he had a greater depth with the Lord and a greater depth of self-awareness, so much so that when he's confronted on his sin years later, when he puts someone in harm's way so that they could die, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and when he's confronted with that sin, he's broken because he recognizes it and he doesn't try to explain it away. You'll never see Saul like David spending time in silence and solitude. It doesn't appear anywhere in the scripture. Writing poetry, music, and songs, pouring out conflicted in the inner world with such great passion. Read the Psalms. Oh my goodness, the Psalms of David are painful. We read that last week. Oh God, where, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry out to you and you're not answering me and I don't know where you are in the midst of this pain. Those are the words of David, paraphrased. Where are you? And over and over and over, my enemies pursue me and I don't know, yet I will praise you. I will praise you in the storm. I will praise you when things are good and when things are bad. There was a depth. Be silent and be still. Be still and know that I am God. I've got a couple more points. Second is this. An emotionally unhealthy person says no to cultivating their personal relationship with God. Saul accepts Jesus, accepts Christ at a certain point. Was Jesus in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Can't separate the Trinity. He was there. He receives the blessing. And in fact, it says that the Spirit of God was on him. He accepted Jesus, but was on autopilot. No indication at all of him cultivating the call and cultivating the relationship and cultivating the anointing. He was anointed and he took off running in his own wisdom and his own strength. See, Saul does not have a hidden life in God. Instead, he wants to be known by people. And can I just tell you, if you're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks, you're in trouble. I can't even put it softly or gently. That's a problem because it will lead you to wrong decisions. He wants all of the benefits. And he listens only if it benefits him or pleases him. 
See, it was politically not wise to kill the best sheep and animals. Who was happy that he spared those things? The people were. And so he makes a political decision rather than walking in obedience. And he's unaware. He can't see it. In verses 22 to 23, see, he's not listening. And, and the key word here is obeying. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And for so many of us, we walk through our lives going, I'll do this for God, and I'll do that for God. And God's like, I never asked you to do that. What I asked you to do is to listen to my word, and then to obey my word. That's thriving at its purest form, at its core, to hear and obey the voice of God. And it might not make sense to other people. How many times in the word of God does God speak to people and say, hey, I need you to do this. And you'd be like, that's crazy. That's nuts. Why would I do? That's not practical. Lord, that's a very bad financial decision. God says, I just called you to be obedient. But Lord, I did all of these things. Surely this must be enough. No, no, no. I didn't call you to sacrifice. See, Jesus took care of that for us. I've called you to obedience. See, what does this look like for us? It looks like this, listening to sermon after sermon after sermon or reading day after day after day. I read my Bible every day. Great. But do you ever ask, how does this apply to me? What is God saying to me? I heard this years ago that the word of God, whether it's spoken or read or prophetic, has to go from being informational where we take it into our minds to transformational where we actually deposit it in our hearts. And then it has to become incarnational where we actually do what it says. We have to live it out. Samuel was speaking, but he wasn't internalizing it through the eyes and ears of his heart, rather Saul. Samuel's speaking to Saul, and Saul doesn't take and go, oh, man, God just said he rejected me. He just glossed right over that. Listen, if God spoke through a prophet like Samuel to me and said, hey, God's rejected you, that would have an effect on me, and I hope it would on you as well. Saul misses it completely. He doesn't even hear the words because he's not asking, what does this mean for my life? For some of us here this morning, we evaluate sermons and books and churches and ministries and we go, oh, that was a clever sermon. Wow, that was a great point. Wow, I really like the way that that person said it. You know, uh, one of my favorite pastors is Alistair Begg on the radio, um, partially because he's got an awesome Scottish accent. And it's just fun to listen to. And he's just a great preacher. But, but honestly, I like listening to him because of his accent. But that's not enough if I don't go, what does this mean to me? God, how do you want to transform me with what I'm hearing? The difference between David and Saul, David says, God, what are you saying to me? See, I grew up in church. Been a Christian since I was five. Went to Bible college, became a pastor, 
And I can honestly say that it wasn't really until 2008 when we about lost everything and our, our lives started falling apart and I burned out that I stopped to say, God, what does this mean for me? Not bury the son or bury the husband or bury the youth, po- youth pastor or bury the, the, the dad or bury the senior pastor. See, because my thinking was always one day when I'm one of those things, everything will just snap into place and I'll be better. And the reality is the further I got down the road, the harder it got to maintain the pretense. The iceberg was growing below the surface and God's going, I care about that. And I just kept living out being a pastor. I've got to prepare another sermon and take care of these people. And God goes, stop. Barry, I care about you, not because of what you do, because of who you are. I'm pleased with you, not because you're a pastor or because you're a husband or a father or a son. I'm pleased with you because you're my child. It was a turning point for me. And I'm still learning to live in that reality because it's a fight against the culture of the world that says everything in in the opposite. Performance, performance, performance. Dallas Willard, the author, said to uh, Ortberg, I forget his last name, but he's a, a scholar as well and a pastor, Ortberg, John Ortberg, rather, had said to Dallas Willard, um, what do I ruthlessly need to do in my life to have a deeper walk with the Lord? Like, just lay it on me. And so Dallas Willard says to John Ortberg, ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And John said, okay, great, what's next? (laughs) We are in such a hurry to please people, to do the right thing, to make things look like they're in place. And God says, no, no, no. The key to, to moving forward is to slow down, to spend time in my presence. The development of our interior spaciousness, the heart and not the head, to know that God loves us and he's not tight-fisted. God's not a jerk. And he's not a killjoy, and he's not just a rule maker, and he's not a military general. He's not like Patton, barking out orders, that he is Abba, intimate and close. So the big theme in EHS, in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, is this, nurturing your personal relationship with God. When everything else in the world and your flesh and the culture is against that very thing, not to mention the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Last point, and we'll close. Emotionally healthy, unhealthy spirituality says no to being broken through setbacks and difficulties. Saul hated trials. Saul just wanted it to be the, the A-lister. He wanted to succeed in everything he did. He wanted to be at the top of the class, he hated waiting after a battle uh, with the Philistines, rather before the battle with the Philistines, and they would sacrifice to the Lord, and Samuel was slowing coming. And, and Saul's like looking at his sundial, and he's like, 
okay, where are you? It's time to get the show on the road because I want to shine. I want to beat these guys. So let's just take care of this God worship thing so I can go be the conquering king. And Samuel's way, it doesn't get there and Samuel doesn't get there. And finally, Saul says, fine, we'll just do the sacrifice. I'll lead. And he steps into a place of authority that didn't belong to him. And it was the beginning of the end for him. Because Samuel shows up and he's like, what are you doing? That's not your job. That's not your job. But you see, he didn't want to wait. And waiting can be a test, amen? For how many of us and so many of us, and I would guess all of us, that God has spoken something in one season and you're like, okay, God, I'm ready for that thing. And God's going, not yet. You're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready. And we're like, I'm tired of waiting. I'm going to go do something else. Right before the breakthrough comes. Right before God opens the door because we don't want to wait. Because we're uncomfortable when it comes to being broken and having setbacks and difficulties. We want to avoid them. We want to live comfortable lives. Francis Chan said this, if we were meant to be comfortable, we wouldn't need the comforter, the Holy Spirit. If, if God's design for us was to be comfortable, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. But because we face trials and setbacks, he's given us and empowered us with the Holy Spirit to stand strong. See, Saul never learned and he never changed. In fact, he only became harder and colder the further down the road he got. We have so many people sitting in our churches, in this church, maybe you, who God is wanting to teach humility to through hurt and pain and suffering. Not because he's cruel, but because he's loving. And he allows the challenges in our lives to be the breeding ground and the nurturing ground of depth, depth of soul. 1 Samuel 15, we just read it. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. That's a good verse to memorize. That's a good verse to memorize. See, Saul didn't have the Beatitudes, right? The first Beatitude that Jesus preached, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're proud, unteachable, defensive, and angry, you're the antithesis of being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit says, God, I just need you. I've got nothing. I bring nothing to the table. I lack, I lack, I lack, and I need more of you. It says of Jesus in Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son and the son of God at that, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He learned obedience See, character that's formed in you through pain and suffering and struggle will not only serve you, it will be a blessing to others. God was seeking to humble Saul, and he will seek to humble us. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 through 5, says of the Israelites, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert for these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order that you may know what was in 
your heart below the surface. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Are you hungry? Are you dependent? Are you poor in spirit for the things of God in your life? See, God wants to get the Saul out of us. He wants to get the Saul out of us. So you can't always get what you want. It would be a disaster, amen? If you just always got what you wanted, man, our lives would be a mess. God develops us in the midst of pain. Can we just agree God's ways are a mystery? We don't get that. We don't, we don't even go, yay, that's great, right? I'm not getting a lot of amens right now right? Because it's hard. Yet it's in that place, in the mystery of God's ways that he says, I will deepen you and I will grow with you. I will grow you and I will make you and cause you to be the person, the man, the woman that I've called you to be. And it's because of that kind of heart that David was able to wait years. He's anointed to be king and it's years later after being pursued and being Saul trying to kill him and being rejected, being in the cave in Agilum and, and the soldiers show up like I talked about last week and there's 400 of them and they're depressed and in debt and discouraged. Wow, thanks God. Yet, yet he leads them because he recognizes I'm waiting and I'm in process and God knows better and he becomes this conquering king. There's nothing like tests and trials to destroy the illusions that we set up for ourselves. Think that, oh, I've got everything figured out, and then to lose a job. The reality that the best health care plan in the world can't cure cancer. Adversity strips illusions and brings about authenticity in our lives. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure. I am clean and without sin. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say that? God's desire is that we would all say that. See, emotionally healthy spirituality says yes to self-reflection and awareness. It says yes to taking an honest look at myself and going, okay, who am I really? Healthy spirituality says yes to cultivating a personal relationship with God beyond I just check the box. Actually asking the question, God, what are you trying to teach me? Healthy spirituality says yes to being broken through setbacks and difficulties. And rather trying to, trying to avoid it, actually embracing it and saying, God, what are you doing in the midst of this trial? Saul didn't say yes, and it led him down a bad road. For the next seven weeks, let's talk about emotional health and contemplative spirituality. See, I'm going to put this chart up here, and I'm almost done. I know we're a little bit over today. We have that. The circle. No. Didn't come through. Okay. We'll show it to you next week.
We need both, contemplative spirituality and emotional health. We need both. There it is. Emotional health and contemplative spirituality. In order to love God well, love others well, and love yourself well, you need both. And you have to develop both. My desire and our vision from our leadership and for this church is that we grow deeper in our walk with the Lord as a church. This is a church-wide initiative. You would have seen that up on the logo up there. Why is it church-wide? Because I believe this impacts every one of us. This is not me saying, hey, sign up for this if you think you need it. This is me saying, hey, you need this, sign up for it. You might need it just a little bit, and you might need it a lot. Either way, we want to see our entire church transformed. I'm going to close with this. We're going to actually have about, and we're a little bit over, but we're going to take a minute for silence in just, in just, just a couple of minutes. Listen to this list real quick. Pay attention. If you're taking notes, just stop for a second. And in fact, don't write these down. Just listen. Top, these are the ten, uh, top 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. Number one is this, using God to run from God. Using God as an excuse to run away from God. Number two, ignoring the emotions of anger, sadness, and fear. How is God coming to me through these? Three, dying to the wrong things, the healthy pleasures of life that God gives you. Denying, number four, denying the past impact on the present. This is especially true of our family of origin and issues that arise from that. Number five, dividing life into secular and sacred compartments, forgetting about him while I'm at work that there's parts of my life that God's a part of and there's parts of it that are just mine and that he has no part of. Number six, doing for God instead of being with God and not developing a personal relationship with him. Number seven, spiritualizing away conflict, avoiding truth just to keep the peace. Number eight, covering over brokenness, weakness, and failure. Number nine, living without limits, not letting God stop you, you trying to do it all, no boundaries. And number 10, judging the spiritual journeys of other people. We're going to take two minutes, a full two minutes for silence, some contemplation. And my question to you is, which is the one of these that God is bringing to your attention? As I read the list, what was the thing that God said, I want to touch that part of your life. We're going to take two minutes of silence, and let's listen and let him speak.
stand together this morning. Amazing how long two minutes is. My prayer is that the Lord spoke to you. But more than my prayer is that you would respond to what he spoke. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as we close. Remember this. The gospel is the good news. It is still the good news. It's okay to be human. And it's okay to fail. But be like David and run to the Lord with a repentant heart. And don't be like Saul where you hide and go, I'm, I'm okay, and convince yourself that everything's all right when it's not. Run to Jesus. Receive his grace. Run over these next few weeks. You're going to have opportunity after opportunity to run to Jesus. Psalm 51:17 says, he delights, God delights in a broken and contrite heart. He delights in it. It's not fun for us, but he delights because he knows what it produces in us. Our prayer team will be available um, during this last song and after service. They're available in the back of the room. Um, if you need to pray with someone this morning, please do so. We'd love to partner with you in prayer. If you've not signed up for the EHS course, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. We start on Thursday. And we want to get a sense of who's going to be there. You can just, you don't have to pay even today. You can, you can pay on Thursday night, but we just need to know how many of you are coming. You can sign up at the welcome table and you can pick up the materials. We have all of the books here this morning. Father, this morning, Lord, this is the picture I have is that you've done some open heart surgery today. And just like a patient who goes through surgery, there's a, a process of recovery. Lord, that you want to bring about some recovery in our lives after the work that you've done today. And so, Lord, I pray as we leave this place that the words would, would settle in our hearts, that you would take us to a deeper place in our walk with you. But, Lord, at the same time, we would sense your comfort and your grace and your peace over our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the journey that you're taking on us on as a congregation, as your body. Lord, I pray that we would emerge on the other end of this stronger and deeper in our walk with you, more aware of who we are so we can walk more fully with you. In Jesus' name, amen.